Tell me the feeling when you get your green beret. Oh, it's a different level. The blood, the sweat, the tears that's gone into that. One minute I'm doing my commando tests, and then seven weeks later I'm in Afghanistan. And what was that like going into Afghan? Oh, that one was horrific. We got Sangin District Centre, one of the most known, notorious strongholds for the Taliban in Afghanistan. Everyone was a bit like, this ain't gonna be a walk in the park. We took 11 million pounds worth of processed heroin off target, just on one day. You couldn't walk anywhere without something going bang. I remember thinking about my kids and thinking, right, that's it, I ain't never going home. And then there's like a little bit of a hunger in you where you're like, ah, nah, 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 nah. Everyone's getting put in the ground before we are. What horrific things did you see? Welcome to the Eventful Lives podcast. I'm your host, Dodge, and I'm the founder of Bournemouth Sevens, the world's largest sports and music festival. On this podcast, I speak to fascinating people who have all lived eventful lives. If you haven't already, do us a favour, press the follow button and check us out at Dodge Woodall on Instagram, TikTok and YouTube, where we've now had over 80 million views. Rian Illett is a former Royal Marine Commando who spent 15 years in the armed forces fighting in the Middle East. We talk about his tours of Iraq and Afghanistan, losing men on the battlefield and getting hit by an anti-tank missile. This is the eventful life of Mr. Rian Illett. Let's, uh, let's roll all the way back. Where did you grow up and how did you end up being one of the top men in the Royal Marine Commandos? So I grew up in Guildford, normal upbringing. And then uh, as a teenager, I was a bit mischievous, got myself into a little bit of trouble and uh, went away for a little bit um, to think about my actions. Went to a place that wasn't very nice, kind of showed me the error of my ways. And then when I come back, I went to college. Uh, my college lecturer was a former Marine. I actually wanted to be a chef. I never wanted to be in the military. Before you before you go there, you said you went away. Yeah. Went away where? So... Because I was in quite a bit of trouble, I got sent as a sort of like a test on this program in Mexico, which was like a kind of like a borstal for naughty kids, if you like. So I spent a year in there and yeah, I never wanted to get into trouble ever again. So it, it did me a favour, but it wasn't a particularly nice year for a teenager. Why, why a lad from Guildford going to Mexico? Because it was sort of like my mum see that I was going down a very bad path. Tried intervening, I was in a bit of trouble with the police and it was only going one way. She mentioned about this place and they give it a go to see if that would work, which it did, mm. but it got shut down while I was out there. So I actually come back six months early. And how old were you when you went out there? 15. Okay. And what made you? What made your mum think, well, I'm going to send him to Mexico? What trouble were you getting in? Oh, I was just up to no good all the time. Looking back now, it's probably not as bad in this day and age, but back then smoking cannabis and running around causing trouble, getting in the fights and things like that. Things that just you don't need to be doing as a as a teenager. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. when you're a teenager, you get into these. And explain to me what that feeling was like being in another country at the age of 15 in Mexico. I weren't good because no. no one liked me because I was like an outsider. Yeah. I was white and English. So uh, I had quite a, a tough time, but I think that probably helped me out for later in life. Did that, when you were there, were you like, I'm not enjoying this, but when you got back, you thought, you know what, that, that sorted me right out. Yeah, I hated every second of it. Yeah. I weren't allowed to speak English. There was a lot of uh, really silly rules, and um, it was very strict. So if you got caught speaking English, you'd get a bit of an eye in. Mm. You'd have all your privilege taken off you. 
and it was kind of on a point system. So you could earn 25 points a day for good behavior. And you could get up to like a thousand points and say one word of English and lose all them thousand points and get punished. So it was a bit of a emotional roller coaster. Mm. And then towards, I'd probably been there probably about seven months and I realized that rebelling weren't going to get me anywhere. So I tried to screw the nut for myself and just got my head down and cracked on. And uh, it kind of it had a level system. So once you got to level six, you could then go home and see if you'd behave at home. So I got to level four. And then it got closed down by the FBI and the Mexican Federales. Wow. And what about how do you get by then if you can't speak Spanish? Or could you speak Spanish? I, so I had a football sent out to me, or soccer as they like to call it. And mm. I got in with a couple of lads, like South Americans that played football with me and sort of like half helped me speak a little bit of Spanish to get by. Mm. So it's a bit of an experience. Fair play. And when you come back, what was your movements then? So I come back and obviously I was a year behind all my peers from school. So I went to a college and did my GCSEs. And then I went to another college uh, in Weybridge, Brooklands, and did a public service course to give me enough GCSEs to be able to join like the military or some form of services. Mm. And it was there I met my college lecturer who was a former Marine. Mm. And uh, he kind of steered me and that's how I ended up joining the Royal Marines. Nice. And what what rough year was this? Uh, so this would have been 2004 to five was college. Then I joined the Marines in 2006 when I finished that second college course. Yeah, yeah. And what, and what made you then choose the Marines? Did you have someone who was like a fatherly figure? Who was like your man who you just met there saying, right, come on, I was an ex-Marine, why don't you go and join them? So that was the final nail in the coffin. Yeah. Um, as a lot of people drinking pubs underage. I was drinking in a pub. There was an old Scottish fella in there. He used to keep himself to himself. I'd got into an altercation one night and I remember him saying to me, if you think you're so fucking hard, why don't you join the Marines or the Paras? <laughs> I didn't know anything about either. Went on this college course and it just so happened that my lecturer was a former Royal Marine Commando. So uh, he kind of, what are you doing with your life? I was like, I don't know, I might just join the army. He went, I'll get you fit. You join the Royal Marines. So I went home and told my mum and dad that I was going to join the Royal Marines and they both laughed at me. And I was like, ah, it's, it's happening. Mm. And that was it. I ended up doing 15 years. And what was your relationship like with your mum and dad? Yeah, really good. Okay. Yeah, I didn't have a broken background yeah. or nothing like that. Yeah. I just uh, got mixed up in things that Teenagers I'm not get proud mixed up of in, yeah. now, mm. but at the time, that's what people did. Mm. And how old were you when you went to the Marines? Uh, 18. And what was that feeling like knowing that you were about to enter Marines? Because you must have seen all the adverts on telly back in that day, sort of mid-2000s. Rabbit and headlights, I think. Yeah, okay. Turning up into a man's world as a boy. So I remember going to Limpston and just looking at people and you was like, oh, these, these are real men. And uh, Yeah, it was like, that was hard. I didn't really enjoy Royal Marine training, but... Just can't give up, can you? And what did you do? What is what, what is Royal Marine training you mentioned then? So you go through like the eight-month commando course where you start at Limpston and you go through a series of different phases of training that teach you like the basics of how to administrate yourself, how to look after yourself in the field. And as you go on, you sort of like learn more tactics and um, sort of like become a soldier. And then the second part of training, you learn more advanced techniques like you do cliff assaults and amphibious assaults and then you go into the commando phase where you do the commando tests 
And if you're successful at the end of the eight months, you'll get your green beret and pass out as a Royal Marines commander. Quality. And how hard was that eight months for someone like yourself? Oh, horrific. I was built like a pencil. Yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) No, that was no good. (laughs) Talk me through those eight months. What was you going through through your mind? Well, so I always sort of like tell it that the... uh, the trained ranks that have got green berets, they're like God. You look at them and you're like, ah, I want that. So that's what keeps you invested. But yeah, oh, you have dark days majority of the time. And uh, I didn't actually get through in one hit. I got back through twice because I just couldn't climb ropes because well, the ropes were thicker than my arms. Mm. So I had to work a little bit harder on trying to get up ropes, which was my biggest thing in Royal Marine training, which set me back a couple of months. And who was there? You saying? Did you pass first time in, no. in the eight months? Okay. So how long? How long was it? Do you? Is it the period when you go in the eight months? You wait till the end. They go, so you ain't pass. Or is it a time when you're like, I'm training, I'm training, I'm training, but halfway through you put your hand up, so I can't do it. So you go all the way through, and you have different tests and phases and yeah. things like that. So you'll only progress onto the next phase or part of training if you pass the required tests. And there was two tests that I failed. One in week nine and one, I think it was like week 17 or 18. But it was both to do with climbing ropes. Yeah. Um, so then you go into a remedial center where, funny enough, all you do is climb ropes, yeah. if that's your problem. And then when you can pass that test in the rehabilitation part, mm. then you go back in the mainstream training and do the test again and continue with another troop. Okay. And then what was your second time you passed? Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And what was that like once you passed? When you got, tell me the feeling when you get your green beret. Oh, it's a different level mm. because so many like the blood, the sweat, the tears that's gone into that. And I, people sit there and want to give up. I wanted to give up. I used to sit there, come back off leave, and go, "Ah, oh, this ain't for me." But then you just got to get through it. Mm. Never give up. Hurdles. It's just overcoming hurdles. Mm. Which the hurdles that I faced in Royal Marine training is actually. Looking back now, they were minute yeah. problems compared to what I've gone on in the rest of my life. Yeah. Climbing a rope is, yeah. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. You know what I mean, it's not really a big deal, but then that was the end of the world for me because I was obviously going to get moved into the rehabilitation troop mm. and not continue with the troop that I'd started with. Mm. So when you passed, when was your first tour? Six weeks after I passed out of training. Was it? Mm. What year were we talking? 2007. And whereabouts did you, was your first tour? Uh, Afghanistan. So, yeah, I, um, I passed out on November the 2nd. And the day that I passed out, all my family have come down to watch me get presented with my green beret. And I hadn't even left Limpston as a trained, like, trained rank yet. And uh, my sergeant who passed me out, Unfortunately, he passed away some years later in Afghanistan. He asked to have a word with me and he said, oh, I've just spoke to 40 Commando and you're flying to Afghanistan next month. So I, I had a long weekend, joined 40 Commando the following Tuesday and went straight into pre-deployment training, got a kit issue, went home for a week and then I flew to Afghanistan, I think the middle of the te- December it was, 2007, and went to a place called Kajaki in Northern Helmand Province. What's that like? An eye opener. Being that young. But felt very comfortable with the people around me. Like everyone was a very, very professional soldier. 
So I never really worried about anything because I had it in my head that if anything went wrong, these lads were going to get me out of it. But yeah, it was just an eye-opener to go from one minute I'm doing my commando tests and then seven weeks later I'm in Afghanistan doing what I actually joined to do. It was a bit surreal because it happened so quick. But I think it worked better for me because the shock of capture was just out and I'd got my first tour out of the way very early on. And what was that tour like as your first tour? Was that the most naughty tour out of the lot or was the was it an easier one? Or No, it wasn't the naughtiest. It was probably quite a nice one to um, break into because the IED threat wasn't as prevalent as it became later on. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, um, some of the lads did tread on devices and unfortunately were casualties and we lost two lads as well in the last week of the tour which is obviously heartbreaking but it wasn't to the extent it was sort of like three years later when IEDs were the main form of the tactic for the Taliban mm. So when you'd done your first tour how long were you out there for in total? Uh, four and a half months Four and a half months and was there anything anything out there that you can recall that shocked you? Yeah I mean uh one of the lads in my section uh, trod on a device and uh, we had three casualties and just seeing someone with limbs missing was a bit like, oh, this is real. Luckily, all three of them survived. So it could have been a lot worse, mm. but it was still, oh, yeah, this uh, this isn't a game. Yeah. And when you got back, how long are you back for? Uh, come back. I had about nine months at 40 Commando and then I went on my anti-tank course. Anti-tank course? Yeah. Go on. Uh, so you get trained in four different weapon systems and you, once you pass that course, you go back to a commando unit into a fire support group or a manoeuvre support group. And um, you've probably seen it before, the vehicles with all the heavy weapons on top. Mm. You do all that for all the direct fire support with the 50 cal, the grenade machine gun, the javelin and the GPMG and the sustained fire roll. Mm. What's the javelin? So it's an anti-tank missile, heat-seeking. Um, I believe they cost about £100,000 to go now. But they're, um, yeah, they're a big... Is that the one in your book there when you're holding on to it? Yeah, that's you're it. You're holding on yeah. to it and you're letting this massive rocket yeah, yeah, go. Yeah. yeah, so you have it on your shoulder, you've got a command launch unit and yeah. you'll acquire your target, lock onto the target, and then you can fire the javelin, either top attack or direct and neutralise your target. And how far does this javelin go? 2.5 kilometres. Does it? Yeah. And sorry for my naivety here, but how does it work? It locks onto heat. Okay. So it's heat seeking. So you've got, um, it's called track gates. So you look through the command launch unit, which is like kind of like a computer game. And um, you've got different fields of view. And um, you can go from like wide to narrow, put a day sight extender on and just acquire your target through them means. And then when you're happy with the target, you activate the seeker trigger which then means you're looking through the actual missile through the seeker dome and then a track gate will come up and then you'll play with the track gates to sort of like bring them around your target and then it will lock onto the heat of it and that's when you'll fire when you've got a lock on onto the heat of whatever you're going to neutralize wow wow and how heavy is this thing 16 kilograms okay yeah 16, so many... 16 for the missile and then eight for the command launch unit mm. And how many of them will you ping off at a time? Are we just talking one a day, one a day here that needs to be done? Or have you got a number of, you've got three or four? How does it work? It's kind of situation dependent. Okay. Because of the range on them. And because uh, they're through thermal, you can obviously see things far away that people don't even know you're there. Yeah. 
So if the uh, normal grav troops, we call them, like the general duty marines were going through villages and that, we'd find a bit of high ground. And then if they got into trouble, we could obviously suppress with the heavy machine guns, the grenade machine guns, and obviously we could see through tree lines and that with the thermal on the javelin anti-tank missile. Mm. What's that feeling like knowing you're firing a javelin missile? Oh, it is good. Yeah, it is good. I, I do like firing them, to be fair. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's quite a sight. Yeah. So you're learning this back in the UK. When was it When was it you, you came back? How long were you back for? And what was your next tour? So I finished my anti-tank course and I went to 4-2 Commando in Plymouth. Yep. And they were in Afghanistan when we joined the unit, like the fresh anti-tankers. Um, but then there was a troop required to go to southern Iraq in a port called Umkazar. So I went out there twice with 4-2 Commando. So I didn't. I probably had a year in the UK with the nine months at 40 Commando, yeah. did my anti-tank course, went to 4-2, and then I went to Iraq with them. What year was this? 2009. 2009. And what was it? What was what was it like landing in Iraq for your second tour? I mean, there's not a great deal to write home about with the Iraq tours I did. Obviously, yeah. the lads that did sort of like the invasion in 2003. Yeah. I was still at school. Yeah. So it was a bit surreal to have watched that on the news, and then years later be in that same country that I'd watched the yeah. invasion on on the telly. But yeah, there's a. Uh, it was just a different role. It wasn't as kinetic as Afghanistan. Mm. It was more, we'd go out on the boats up and down the waterways and just do patrolling. We was there as more of a presence. Yeah. And how many, like, to explain there, how many people would there be in your in the presence? You know, like the commandos working, patrolling up and down, people on the camps. Are we talking, I mean, are we talking hundreds? Are we talking thousands? All right, so it depends. So Afghanistan, you'd have a commando unit. So 40 commando would always go out on their own. And then 4-2 and 4-5 commando, they'd go out separate to 40 commando because you've always got to have a lead commando element yeah. in the UK and uh, each commando unit you're probably looking at between six to 800 blokes right okay so then obviously when you get into Afghanistan if you're one unit you spread quite thin around all the forward operating bases mm. and patrol bases mm. what's Iraq like how do you explain Iraq like I said I didn't do a great deal in, mm. in Iraq but it was just more westernised and it was more of a for me it was like that. oh I've been to Iraq because that was the biggest thing on the news when everyone yeah. invaded on uh, Operation Telic. So, yeah, it was more of a status thing that I'd been to Iraq over. I, I didn't do a great deal in Iraq. Okay. So when you finished that Iraq, how long were you there for in Iraq at that time? Uh, so we did three months, come back for a month, and then went back for three months. And then when we was in Kuwait about to fly home in the de de December, I phoned my branch sponsor like of the anti-tank branch mm. and asked him if I could be moved back to 40 Commando because they was about to go on their second Afghan, which he said yes because they needed some anti-tankers. So I had Christmas at home and about three or four weeks off and then I rejoined 40 Commando and jumped straight into their pre-deployment training to deploy on their next tour of Afghanistan. Mm. And what was that like going into Afghan? Oh, that one was horrific. Yeah. Yeah, that was a bad day at the office. What year was this? 2010. Okay. Explain to me what it was like going. So this must be like your fourth tour now. Yeah. Where nothing Second of Afghan. Second of Afghan. Okay. Explain to me what it was like going in this time. So we rewind before getting into Afghan. Yeah. Because when we was on Norton Manor camp, 
Um, there's like a day where the whole unit will go and sit in a hall called Termly Hall. And it's where the commanding officer will tell each company where their area of operations is. So it's quite an exciting time because obviously certain parts of Afghanistan were naughtier than other. Others had higher IED risks and things like that. So it was a bit of a one of them where you're walking down like, oh, what are we going to get? Yeah. And uh, Charlie Company, which is the company that I did my first tour with in mm. Kajaki, we got Sangin District Centre, which is like one of the most known notorious strongholds for the Taliban in Afghanistan. And uh, yeah, everyone was a bit like, ah, this ain't going to be a walk in the park. And it wasn't. But with the right people, we did what we could do. Mm. You say it wasn't a walk in the park. What do you mean by that? So we took the most casualties that the commandos had taken since Korea. Uh, we took one in four casualties. And um, it was heavy hitting because it, it was quite dirty with uh, all the the increase in IEDs and roadside bombs. So it was... Um, you had the metal detect any, everywhere. You couldn't walk anywhere without something going bang. So it was... A, it was Obviously, as a soldier, you're happy to have a firefight. If you're doing the right thing, generally, it's quite exciting and you can do something about it, but you can be the best soldier in the world. You can't help what you tread on when it's yeah. buried in the ground. Yeah. And what are you looking for in an IED? Is it like, could you tell, like, what's the floor like? How does it, what can you visualise when if you see one or not? Thing is, they're good at what they do. Yeah. So they dig them in areas where you are frequently going to go. So we always had this thing that we'd take the harder route because it was the safest route. If you walk down a path or you go into an area where you're channeled to cross a, a river or something on a bridge, chances are they'd put something there. Mm. But they were smart with how they did it because they'd do it in ways where they'd then cover it in water once they'd dug it in. So it like blends in with the ground once it dries. So very, very hard to tell. And as time went on, they had low metal content and no metal content IEDs. So when you're there, I'm just trying to visualise it now. What are you, what does it look like? What does your camp look like? What are you doing in the day? How do you know who's a Taliban, who's not a Taliban? So that was the hardest part for the 2010 tour because we were trying to go down the road of being less aggressive, which, in my opinion, war is aggressive, so people shouldn't really have an opinion on how things are done unless you're in that situation. Mm. Um, so... We was in a patrol base called Airport Lounge, and it got its name because it was a uh, old. What was it? he was an arms dealer slash heroin dealer. He had a very big mansion, and it had a water tank on the roof in the shape of a plane. That's why it was called Airport Lounge. <laughs> so we took that over as our patrol base, and we operated out of there. So what you'd have, you'd have the main forward operating base, and then you'd have a series of patrol bases around it, and then whatever section troop or company was in each base, they'd then go out on patrols mm. just to dominate the area, to deny the enemy freedom of movement. Ah, oh, okay, deny the freedom of movement, okay. So what's that feeling like? What's the hostility like if you're not a Taliban, knowing that you lot have piled over there in their country and you're just a normal bod out there just trying to live your life? I mean, some of them move away. Some of them don't. Some of them like you. A lot of them don't. It's, it's a bit of a weird one because you can speak to someone Try and help them, give them some food, give them a radio, offer them medical assistance. And you, where's the Taliban? Oh, no Taliban. Where are the bombs? There's no bombs. And then 10 minutes later, your mate's just lost two of his legs and you're like, ah, you yeah. walk down this road every day, you knew that was yeah. there. Yeah. So it was the struggle of trying to 
they might not necessarily be a terrorist, mm. but they're a sympathizer. Okay, they're looking off their own. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. How do you know it's a Taliban or not? When they shoot at you or not. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty much that's that what I'm saying. The is, awkward if, thing with that was, <laughs> is you would see people and you knew they were they were dodgy. Okay. But you couldn't do nothing about them because they wasn't armed. Did you just know by looking, did you know the way they were dressed? Did you know that they were hiding something? But it's the way they look at you as well. Okay. When they look at you with such hatred, mm. and you're like, oh, yeah, we can't do nothing about you, but 100% you don't like us. Yeah, okay. And what's that feeling like being a group of load of lads going, you know it's either them or us? Are you sort of all fired up, ready to go, come on and bring it on? Oh, 100%. That's yeah. the only way of coming on. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not into that um, political correctness and all that. I believe extreme violence is necessary at the right time. Mm. And at the end of the day, us or them, I'll back us. Is there anything you saw that when you were laying in your bed at night, you are like, oh, we shouldn't have done that? No, nah, never. Never. Got no regrets. Yeah. Is there anything when you lay in your bed at night with happiness going, what you've done that day? Later on in my career, yeah. How naughty was it out there on this tour then? It was dirty. Yeah. That was the problem with it. It was dirty because of all the IEDs. I've got to try and word it word it in a way, because obviously if people's family members hear this, obviously people were getting turned into jigsaw puzzles. Mm. You know what I mean? People were having limbs blown off regularly. And that's not a nice On both sides or? Yeah, obviously. War, you have casualties on both sides. Mm. Unfortunately, we were taking a lot of casualties. Um, people treading on IEDs, people getting shot, people getting blown up with rocket propelled grenades. And because it was summer, it's kind of called the fighting season because the crops are higher. They can obviously snuggle through, get closer to you because they can hide in the crops. And all, like we was in the green zone. So when you've got crops that are higher than you are, you can't, you haven't got any sort of visual distance. You're just waiting to bump into people. So you're kind of like on edge waiting for that crack and thump of someone to shoot at you. And then you just kick in the autopilot and it's like, oh, right, it's time to go to work. Wow. And how many sort of hours a day are you grafting there? So that was an odd one because the routine of looking after the patrol base, obviously you can't do a patrol come in and just go to sleep. Yeah. You've still got to be on the roof. We call them sangers, kind of like an observation post where you'll have two blokes sat there observing to make sure we don't get attacked in our own patrol base. But you still would. So then you'd end up fighting off your walls. So you could you could do anything from three patrols a day, but then when you come in, if you hit the timings wrong on the sentry list, you're straight on the roof for another two hours, yeah. like keeping eyes on while other people are resting and eating food. Mm. So it was quite full on for and, that whole seven months. And then, like you're in this big building you're talking about. Yeah, that's where you. That's where the base was. Just explain what it looks like around that base. Is it like a normal city, a town, people going to work, not going to work? What, how can you explain that? So the only way I can describe it is kind of like a council estate made out of mud. Okay. They haven't got like a lot of tarmac. It's all like dirt tracks. All the compounds have high walls. The buildings are different shapes. A lot of them have got domes on it. So as far as you can see, you can just see like a normal a state of buildings, but they're just made out of mud. And then in certain areas, you'd have the green zones with the River Helmand going through it, and that would just be like, not like a jungle, but similar, mm. with like thick vegetation. And what was your role personally when you were out there to do? 
So that time, um, because we was undermanned as a unit, normally because I was anti-tanks, we'd be in uh, like the fire support group. But a couple of us got moved into a general duties troop where we were just bods on the ground mm. um, because we needed to make a, a troop last minute. Mm. So we had um, lads come straight out of commando training, straight into this troop with a few of us that had a little bit of experience and that was our troop, off you go. Mm. And fair play to them lads because that was a disgusting tour to have as your first tour mm. out of training as like an 18-year-old lad. Mm. And how old were you at this time, roughly? 21, 22. Wow, still young, isn't it? Yeah, early 20s. Mm. And how long was that tour for? Seven months. Okay. Did you enjoy it? It's a weird one. Because 100%, there's still probably a little bit of my soul left in, in that Sangin Valley. Because I, I lost a couple of very good friends and I was in some horrific situations. But the weird thing is, is I'd happily go back 13 years and go straight back into that compound with them same group of lads. What horrific things did you see? I was involved in a couple of IED strikes where I had to put my mate's legs in my day sack and carry them back. Um, we got 360'd. No one could get to us. Obviously, people were dying while we were trying to repel the ambushes and things like that, getting caught out in, in the southern green zone. Uh, there, there just wasn't enough of us on the ground. There was 15 of us and five of them were... Like cat, cat A casualties, serious, serious casualties were missing limbs, and unfortunately, two of the lads didn't make it. Oh, man. But it was obviously that was a bad day. Mm. But then, because of the way the Taliban could move around us with all the crops and the vegetation, they then got all around us 360'd and then just started coming for us, tried overrunning us, and it turned into a bit of a. Yeah, it turned dirty and a bit seedy. But. We did what we had to do, stayed tight, got everyone out, and there were some serious acts of hero heroism that come out that day. That probably one of the worst days of my life, but I wouldn't change that because of what I got to see men doing. Like just to witness people coming together and going, nah, this ain't happening, we're getting out of this. And just digging deep into that. So I remember sitting there when the second IED went off and was like, oh, we're in a bad place here. Like, we ain't getting out of this. I remember thinking about my kids and thinking, right, that's it. I ain't never going home. And then there's like a little bit of a hunger in you where you're like, no, 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 we'll have this. Everyone's getting put in the ground before we are. And people just went back to back and did their did what they had to do. You had lads trying to find routes out because obviously it, clearly we were in a heavily IED'd area. So you've got blokes obviously with metal detectors and like knives and bayonets prodding the ground to try and find more devices so we can get a route out. You've got blokes tourniqueting people's legs, trying to stop the bleeding. You've got blokes repelling the ambush, fighting the, the Taliban that are closing in. You've got blokes on the radio trying to get some form of help, trying to get the medical helicopter in. It's just all chaos, but just to look around and see everyone doing what they were doing. And you're like, ah, yeah. yeah, these are the right people to be in this situation with. Wow, that's powerful. How many Taliban do you reckon there were that day? Oh, you, you can never tell. There had to be at least 15 or 20 of them because they were all around us. But when we got out, so we was across like an irrigation ditch that was like knee deep of water. And as soon as we got across there, our sergeant major and our um, colour sergeant 
like real real balls are still just went nah I'm going to get the lads and just no balls it with a quad whilst getting shot at to come and get our casualties so then once we managed to get the cot because the medical emergency response team the Mert, the Chinook with all the heroes on it that come in and it's basically like a flying surgery mm. um, they work off of golden hour so they guarantee that we'll get you back to Camp Bastion into theatre within an hour and uh, I remember seeing that helicopter come into the valley and thought, oh, someone must have a plan. And then it disappeared again and we was like, oh, no, that's, that's not what I wanted to see, mate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Come back. Yeah. Come back. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, so we ended up, uh, we managed to get our casualties back to the FOB through... Um, FOB? Uh, forward operating base, which was like the main base. Like it was a bit bigger than the patrol base. It had a company strength for people there instead of a troop. And... Uh, I remember sitting on a wall, like everyone's on a knee looking around, and we knew that we had like 300 metres to cross a river and then 500 metres to get up this channeled canal path back into the back gate of the the, the FOB. And uh, I remember it getting passed down the line. I had a, a big machine gun, a general purpose machine gun, so I was at the back bringing up the rear. And it got passed down the line. Friendlies on the western side of the river. Like, oh, sweet. Happy days. Like, they've got lads out. We're good. And as soon as we broke into the open ground and started running towards a bridge, so, someone turned around and went, cancer, it's enemy on the western <laughs> side of the river. So we run straight into another ambush and then had to fight our way out of that to get onto the canal path to then peel back into our fob. And it was just a day of chaos. I remember running along and I could, it was one of them, like, you know when you're a kid and you're having a nightmare and you put your duvet over your mm. head and you're like, ah, if I don't see it, it's not there. Yeah. I remember out the corner of my eye seeing them like 25 metres away and a tree line just hosing at us with their AKs. I was like, ah, if I just look forward, they ain't there. And was just firing on the move. Like, oh. And yeah, again, luckily, Al, no one got shot on that move back into the fob. I'll never know. So what happens then when you bring back, you're putting someone's legs, your mate's legs in your bag, bringing them back. They're getting back to the camp. How long are, are these mates of yours dead at that point they were or... dead when they were on the ground okay I just picked stuff up because I didn't want the Taliban to sweep through and realise they're people that I'm very close to yeah didn't want to leave anything behind especially not that because then they know they've got a victory what happens when you get back to camp what happens with these bodies are they sent back to Camp Bastion like, sent back to the UK yeah so you go back to Camp Bastion and then there'll be a repatriation um, and that's where like it was seen all over the news when you've got the coffin with a yeah. Union Jack on and then there'll be a bearer party that carries the coffin onto the back of either the Hercules or the C-17 airframe that then flies them back to what used to be Wooten Bassett, but then they started doing it at Bryce Norton yeah, okay. towards the back end of Afghanistan. Yeah. And when you're out on an operation like that, just explain to me what you've got, what ammunition you've got, what you're carrying on you. So it depends. Everyone will have a role. So because the, the way that the IEDs and, and the roadside bombs were going, the front man would be called a Valor man. He'd have a metal detector and he'd go along. Worst job in the world. I'm so glad I've never done it. They're, they're proper heroes then. They'll sort of like go along, metal detect, and then if they find anything, they'll get a paintbrush out, try and sweep it. And like, We can't go around there. And then they'll call in for like the EOD teams that come out and EOD? like the bomb specialists okay you know what i mean they come out and they that's their sole job to disarm ieds and 
like destroyed them. Mm. That that's their bag. Obviously, we're not going to do that. We're not trained to do that. We'll just mark and record it, and then get the specialists in to deal with it. I tell you, what, I've got massive respect for those lads. Jesus Christ! I'll go and do the find the IED so everyone's safe. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's some ballsy characters. Different leagues are heroes. Different leagues are heroes. Yeah. No one really talks about these lads. Same as the um, the people on the, on the Mertz and the people in Camp Bastion Hospital. Mertz? The medical emergency response okay. team, the helicopter, the schnook yeah. that comes in. Yeah. Like them people, they're saving people. All the surgeons that were back at Camp Bastion, you know what I mean? They're, coming, they're, they're seeing people with like one arm. Yeah. People that are absolutely shredded to pieces. And then they're working on them for however long to, to keep them alive. Like they're, they're heroes. Yeah. I'd like to get one of them on. Get yeah. some exposure for these guys because, wow, what what they're doing over in another country is they're not spoken about. No. no. What was your movements there then? You said that was a real naughty tour. Was there any more naughty days then? Or did that, when you woke up the next day, were you all in like massive shock losing your mates? Did you have to go back out again? Are you mentally like, right, we've got to switch on, we've got to go again? Yeah, that's all it is. Yeah. But some people were affected and people had to get sent back. Because it, it just fried them. But I think by that time, I'd sort of like started becoming a little bit desensitized. A little bit like, oh, right, this this is just work now. Yeah. So um, we cracked on and finished the tour. But yeah, we had some we had some horrific days. We had one of the Black Hawk American helicopters get shot down outside our fob coming in to pick up a casualty. That was a dirty day for the lads that helped with that. I provided overwatch because we were heavy weapons, but lads actually crawled into a burning wreckage of a helicopter and were dragging people out. Um, unfortunately, we lost two very close friends of mine in our patrol base when we had grenades thrown over the wall. Um, he was one of the, the big heroes, Paul Warren. He was one of the the men at the front that went, now nah, I'll do this, give me that metal detector. And then unfortunately paid the ultimate sacrifice a couple of months into the tour when... Um, that's what I mean. You weren't even safe in your patrol base because no. people would just throw grenades over your wall. Yeah. You couldn't do nothing about it because the dead spots that they could get into because of all the high compound walls. Yeah. And then um, the following morning, the base would always get attacked. They'd always shoot at you, but you can do something about that. Mm. And then unfortunately, another one of my close friends that I did my anti-tank course with, Mike Taylor, he um, went to react on a wall to us getting attacked. A sniper shot him through the throat. So that was like two of our best lads in the troop gone within 16 hours of each other. Jeez. So, that, yeah, there was a lot of horrific days on that tour, but you kind of like, um, kind of had your hands tied behind your back because there's only so much you could do. Like, there comes a point, we don't like setting patterns because if we set patterns, the enemy can sort of like guess what we're going to do. But when you're in an area for seven months... There's only so many routes you can walk before you have to start setting patterns. And that's that's kind of like, when I say it was naughty, it was it was because of the, just how savage them IEDs were. Yeah. Because even if you got shot at, you'd go into sort of like a break contact drill where you're, people are firing, manoeuvring, trying to support each other to get out of the killing area of an ambush. You'd run straight into an IED. And it, it just, they were starting to rule the battlefield. You can't do nothing about them. One minute you're walking along, the next minute three people have just turned in the pink mist and you're like, ah, you know. Have you seen it with your own eyes? Oh, yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, a couple of times. Explain, and then, explain to me what it looks like. Well, it's just like a big mushroom crowd that goes up in the air. And um, like we used to carry ladders to look into compounds and look over compound walls because they were so high. I remember being on a roof watching the lads, like supporting them to come through and then we are going to join up with them and move off with them. So we took a compound, then they took a compound and we'd sort of like leapfrog each other. Mm. And I remember just hearing a horrific bang and it kind of vibrates through the floor. So you feel the vibration and then just seeing a ladder go at least 90 foot in the air and you're like, ah, someone was holding onto that ladder. And then you start, things start raining down, parts of people's weapons, body parts, and you're like, ah, oh no, I hope he's all right. And then you go into sort of like survival mode, whatever you've got to do to make sure you can either save him and repel that that ambush that you know is coming because they kind of use it as a come on. Yeah. So once they hear an explosion, they know where all them IEDs are. Yeah. As soon as you hit one, they know that you're now focused on all them casualties because chances are the IEDs are that big. They're normally going to take out two or three people, if not more. Yeah. And then they're going to hit you. When so you're, you're, you're coming to help. You're coming in to help and then they're coming in to go grab you while you're there. Yeah, so you're Jeez. coming in to help your mates, start putting tourniquets on, trying yeah. to stop the massive hemorrhage. And while you're trying to sort out a casualty, you've got them trying yeah. to roll you up and... Okay. um getting in amongst you and they'll just ambush you while you're yeah. trying to sort your casualties out. As this is going on, are you getting more and more angry? Oh, yeah, of course. You can't say you're not. Mm. You, you just can't not. You know what I mean? Like, you're watching your mates die. Yeah. And these these ain't just mates that, oh, yeah, he's, he's my mate from down the road. Yeah. These are people you've formed. You've chosen to be a part of this brotherhood. These people are very, very close to you. Like, you die for each other. Mm. You know what I mean? It's a different league of... It's a different league of love that you have for each other. And then you're you're watching people get hurt really, really bad or not make it home. Mm. You're just like that. Mm. And anyone who says you don't want revenge, I, I think you're lying or you've not been in that situation because yeah. 100% I wanted revenge. Yeah. That's a million was, percent. That's what I was about to ask. Yeah, yeah 100%. Mm. Did you get to a point where you're going, if he's Taliban, I'm having him. If I think he's Taliban, I'm having him. Or I'm half-hearted he's Taliban, I'm still having him. So I never got into the point of, I want everyone in this country to die. This is not professional, you know what I mean? But I got to that point, like, if you give me a reason, I'm putting you in the ground. Yeah, That's that's simple as that. You come at us with a weapon, you, you're getting it. Mm. There's no way around it. I started to lean into to that type of thing. Yeah. Where it was just like, give me a reason. But it wasn't just me. That was all of us. Everyone, yeah. You know what I mean? One of them. What was that tour? What was, how long did that tour last for? Seven months. Okay. And how long in that tour did this all kick off? When oh, you, this, when this, you were ambushed? Then that seven months. Oh, so we, we'd get ambushed every day. Like, without fail, we'd, we'd get ambushed every day. But a lot of the times, you'll just get someone... Or a couple of people in a compound or in a tree line, they'll shoot at you. We'll shoot back and that'll be the end of it. Yeah. Like that had happened multiple times a day, every day. Mm. But the, the horrific events, mm. that was about five months in. Okay. Like that double IED strike and yeah. then the, the Black Hawk helicopter was towards the end. Um, Early on in the tour, sort of like a couple of months in, that's when unfortunately my troop lost Mike and Paul. Yeah. But there was no... That tour... 40 Commando, there was no... Obviously, I'm talking from a Charlie Company point of view. There wasn't no one on that tour that had an easy day. 
Mm. Whether it was Alpha, Bravo, Charlie, Delta, everyone had an odd day at the office. Yeah. No one had it easier than anyone else. So after that seven months, were you relieved to go back home? Yeah, I mean, you, you come home and you're like, ah, what has just happened? Yeah. You know what I mean? Start processing it. Always found that it used to take me about six weeks to settle into like being home. Just because you've been away so long. Get home, start going out with your mates, out having beers and things like that, and all of a sudden you just settle back into normal life. Unfortunately, some people can't. But touch wood, I've, uh, I consider myself lucky. I've never really had any demons come after me. Okay. Because a lot of lads I've had on here, or different lads I've had, have had demons. Yeah. And you just don't know. You're putting yourself through that. You're coming back. There's no decompression time. You're walking around Tesco's getting some dinner, getting all of a sudden you're having a tear up your stable shooting people. Yeah. <laughs> What's the knock-on effect of that when you get bringing alcohol into the system as well? Everyone's coming back. They want to let steam off, getting smashed. You don't know what triggers... I mean, I think it's a good thing. Yeah. The whole alcohol thing, I think it's a good thing in a controlled environment. Like in, we In a controlled environment, yeah. yeah. Like, I believe what goes on on our camp, the Sun newspaper should never hear about. Yeah. The Daily Mail shouldn't be allowed to report on. What we do within our, the confines of our own camp no. it should just be down to us. I mean, if lads want to let steam off by... Because we used, we used to build our own memorial bars for the lads we'd lost. And uh, you'd sit in there in an evening and you'd have a couple of beers with the lads. If you want to let off steam, crack on. Yeah. Like, I don't see an issue with that. Mm. If lads have got a problem with each other, sort it out. Mm. Go behind the block, sort it out, come back, shake hands, crack on. Mm. It's only a problem when it's forced out of camp. Yeah. And then obviously it happens downtown and things like That's that. That's what I mean. When you go downtown, getting smashed in a nightclub, things triggering, yeah. getting that violent streak back in you. There's, yeah. there's, no, there's no decompression from the madness going on out there to coming back to Portsmouth or wherever you are in the country. Yeah, I mean, you do, um, so you do, it is called decompression. You do 24 hours in Cyprus before you come home. Yeah, but does that happen everywhere all the time? Because I'm hearing different stories from different people. Uh, I've done Cyprus three times, but they've all been different. Okay. Like the first time was, yeah, the, the 2007-2008 tour. That was a good crack. Like, Because I was the sprog of my troop, I had to dress up as a, a female and enter a, a talent competition to see who was the, like, the, the most beautiful girl. <laughs> that was quite interesting. <laughs> but things like that, we had a laugh yeah. with it. Yeah. Um, there was alcohol involved, but mm. it was within a confined environment. Mm. You know what I mean? Controlled. The second one was the same, but everyone was a bit wiry. Wiry? Uh, that seven months in Sangin, just yeah. people were coiled springs. Mm. So there was booze involved there, but yet again, controlled environment. Mm. And then um, I think that's on. all great. I do. I think it's absolutely brilliant. I Camaraderie, yeah, cheers, yeah, yeah. boys, looked after you, your mum, mate, I looked after you, did that, you're clocking each other for life. 100%. I just think when you've had such a mad tour and you're, you disperse from your, your, your people you're working with, you're going into town, getting smashed, and it's triggering things in the mind. For you to get violent again, seeing flashbacks of what happened in war or what happened out in Afghan or whatever. See, in my experience, that's like a minority to me. I've not really been around okay. people that have just got drunk and then committed mindless acts of violence because mm. it's triggered them. Yeah. Like, yeah, lads do fight. Yeah. People get into rows on mm. the on the on the piss. I mean. Normal people yeah, get normal, into piss. That's what I mean. Football fans, everyone you know, gets on. Everyone, yeah. everyone has a row. My here point and there. is though is. What happens to the per the people who are 
killing people and then coming back? Have they got any support networks around them to see how they, they are? Like we're going through this whole mind health thing at the moment. Um, I think I think it's coming on, but I don't think it's there. Okay. I think the best, yeah, again, I've, I've been lucky. I don't, I don't really think, yeah, I've had bad days, mm. but everyone has bad days. Normal people have bad days. I count myself lucky I haven't hit them realms of like post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah. I think I've gone past that, just become decent. This is the normal. This is yeah. what I do. But the lads that do struggle, I think the best therapy is being around the lads. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because no, you can go and see a doctor. That doctor He's doesn't have nothing. a clue, no, no clue what you've just done. Yeah, agree. But then unfortunately in the military, people get drafted. Oh, you're moving units. Yeah. And then they're taken away from the lads that they've, built that bond with that they've gone through all that heartache with and then they're moved off somewhere else that must hurt and then obviously they feel lonely yeah so there's things like that I know mental health's becoming more of a a topic now and people are promoting it a lot more mm. but in my opinion we're still well off yeah agree and I think the problem is people can play it as a card as well yeah well, there's different levels. PTSD is a different level from one to ten. Yeah, of course you can yeah. have complex PTSD yeah. and all sorts, but you will get people that will play the game and go, oh, "I've got PTSD because they've been caught on a drugs test yeah. or done something wrong." Yeah. Oh, I've got PTSD, and that tarnishes the good work for the lads that actually need it. Yeah. So, yeah, it's just an ongoing. So, thing. when you come back from that tour, how long are you back in England for? Uh, so. Oh, I went on, um, so I was due to join a join a, a specialist military unit. Mm. And uh, to go and be part of this unit, I had to be uh, a qualified parachutist. So I went to Bryce Norton, I did my jumps course. And then I had a couple of weeks leave. And then I joined um, my new unit down in Cardiff, uh, MOD St. Affin. And I was in an all-commando company. And I'd been there about six months and they then amalgamated the unit because it was a tri-service unit. You had paras there, RAF regiment, other army cap badges that all made up this specialist military unit. And uh, they got us all in and said, right, everyone's getting mixed together. Like, we don't want this marine stuff, para stuff. Like, you're all going to mix together, which I personally think was a good thing. Mm. But it was literally, who wants to go to Afghanistan? Yeah, me. <laughs> And that was it. I was moved straight in the C company and went straight on pre-deployment training for another Afghan. <laughs> so why did you choose to go back to Afghan for what you've just gone through? You're just like, I'm in. I need this in I'm my life. Unfinished business. Yeah, okay. Yeah, unfinished business. What year was this? 2011. 11, okay. Yeah. And what was that tour like? Oh, amazing. If I could do that for the rest of my life, I'd be happy. Wow. Because it was all acting on intelligence, so you knew you was going after bad men. Okay. And where we were going, there was very minimal IEDs because people hadn't been there before. And we had a dispensation of work at Reach. So that whole golden hour that the green military had to work off, so where they was all in Helmand, we could branch out to other provinces and mm. hunt people down that way. And we were getting into some good scraps because we had the intelligence. It was on our terms. Yeah. And I think that tour helped me because I come home and was like yeah alright you gave us a bloody nose last year but we've ironed you out this year <laughs> wow so when you're saying they give you intelligence are they what are they actually giving you we just know where where like strongholds were yeah and because we was a, a larger body of men and we had the assets of Chinook helicopters or American Sea Stallion helicopters 
we could launch upreach yeah. and then go and disrupt all of their strongholds and their freedom of movement that they thought they had. But equally, we'd take the vehicles out for like three, four weeks at a time and just drive and drive and drive and just see what we come across and make our own intelligence because sometimes you drive past a certain area that you know is full of badness. Mm. You get shot at, you're like, oh, whatever. Yeah. And then just go What are you it. actually looking to do? Take all the Taliban out, but you don't know how many Taliban there are. So is this just an ongoing, ongoing, ongoing thing? Or are you looking to take out their arms, their weapons? What? It's all about disrupting their freedom of movement. So if you're turning up on their front door and causing them casualties, taking their weapons off them, taking money off them, obviously heroin was a big thing because obviously they made a lot of money out of their heroin. That ultimately has a knock-on effect. Mm. You're never going to get rid of all of them. Mm. You can't. Because we were involved in that conflict for so long. When we first went there, you'd have children that 10 years later were now fighting age males that were getting amongst it. So you're never going to completely defeat it. Mm. But you can try. Mm. How long were you on this tour for? Seven months. Seven months again? Yeah. There's a pattern going on here, isn't there? Did you know you're going seven months, yeah. or do you know you go? Oh, they say you are there for That's seven like months. That's like the minimum six, okay. seven months. Okay. And I how personally, think it should be longer, but <laughs> how long? Uh, what was the? Uh, what was that tour? How would you explain that tour? The last one was dirty, naughty. What was this one? Yeah, I had a good time on that one. That was like the rock star tour. We had the kit, we had the equipment, we had the assets, we had the intelligence, and we caused arm. Yeah. yeah. It was good, very good. You had a sense of uh, achievement at the end of it. You hadn't just been patrolling the same area for seven months. You'd actively gone out and caused the Taliban to have like a big hit to them. We took £11 million worth of processed heroin off target just on one day. That's going to be a big knock-on effect to them buying all their weapons. We took loads of weapons off target, prestigious weapons like um, SPG-9 recoilless rifles, things that the Taliban only had 13 of. We took two. Mm. So all of a sudden you're like, ah, well, we are actually making a little bit of a difference here. Mm. And also we got to go to other places where British and American forces were. And if they were having a bit of an hard time, we could go and bolster and like use our assets and our manpower to sort of mm. like give them a bit of breathing space. So instead of being in one place, we went everywhere. Yeah, we went everywhere. Just going back there, you're talking about how, what's it like working alongside an American? Oh, I really like them. Yeah, was there a lot of respect there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah the the experiences I've had with the Americans, and yet again later on in my career, I was in sort of like a a mixed team of American and, and British soldiers. I really like them. I rate them. So after that tour, then what? Ah, so the Marines had a thing, and I think it might have been military-wide that you wasn't allowed to do back-to-back tours because you needed a bit of rest in the UK. And someone had figured out that I'd gone under the radar and done five. So there was a bit of like, oh, my God, how has he got away with that? Mm. So I got sent to the commando training centre at Limpston to be on the commando display team, which I didn't want to do, but kind of got forced into that. So I went down there for nine months and did that until someone had let me back into a commando unit when they felt I'd had enough time at home. Mm. And then what? I went away again. To where? 
So I went to Greece, which sounds really nice, but it wasn't nice at all. But that's when I, when you said earlier, do I ever lay there and think, oh, that was really good. That was horrific, but had a very good outcome. Greece? Like, yeah. Why Greece? Because when ISIS started overrunning Iraq and Syria, yeah. and everyone fled into Turkey, obviously everyone's seen it on the news, all the, all the floatable boats and people trying to get across yeah. in anything that they can. Five of us went out there to support the UK border force on a like a hospital rescue boat. Mm. And um, yeah, we just ended up more involved than I think we should have. But we was out there just over two months and we saved over 2,800 lives of people that had been stranded or drowning in the sea, capsizing. But these weren't like what you see on the news where it's just hordes and hordes of fighting age males. These were all women and kids that were generally in desperation trying to get away from ISIS. Wow. So that was uh, that was very different. You know what I mean, I never, I never expected to join the military and be involved in something yeah. like that. And yet again, that was dirty, very dirty. Like, but yet again, lads coming together to do what they need to do. You say dirty. I'm visualising all those boats coming up that we saw on the news. Yeah. Men, women, kids. You didn't know who anyone was on those boats, where they're from. Did you feel that was any ISIS and stuff on those boats coming into Greece? Or were you, did you feel like it was safe, genuine people, civilians trying to get out of their country to save their lives? I felt safe that these people needed help. Yeah. When, when I did it, at the, at the beginning, our team, like I said, a lot were just women and children. <coughs> um, I never actually saw boats full of men. Yeah. like you do in, in, in the newspaper, which it is now mm. predominantly. Um, this was right at the beginning where they were in desperation to get across that Aegean Sea into the Greek islands. Uh, but yet again, that was dirty because obviously not everyone made it. You probably see some of the iconic pictures on the news yeah. of kids laying Watched face up. down. It's awful. There was quite a bit of that went on. And we'd have to go out and do patrols in the ribs in the morning, like the smaller speedboats, to collect human remains and the people that hadn't made it. Wow. And you did that for two months? Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything that sticks in your mind out of that? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it was horrific. I'm, I'm not going to be, beat around the bush with that because these are people that haven't joined the military. You know what I mean? The way I look at it, when my mates get hurt, yeah, I hate it. But we were all there for that cause. These people are just going around their day-to-day -day life and they've just got horrible people coming in and taking over their cities and their towns and trying to push their ideology on them. And if they don't conform with it, well, they're getting either raped, beheaded, or turned into slaves. So there was a lot of compassion there to help them people. And uh, where we was doing it sort of like February-ish time, the weather was not too good. So if they were hitting the water, it was the race against time of people dying of hypothermia, but the weather was quite rough as well. So where they were, the people smugglers were ramming the boats full of people. Like you could have 70-odd women and kids on one little boat that you probably shouldn't have had 20 people on. Yeah. And then they hit a little bit of rough weather, capsize. A lot of people can't swim. Yeah. The life jackets, a lot of them didn't have them. And then all of a sudden, you're just like seen out of Titanic. And you're going around doing CPR on kids. No, next. Oh, and that, that's how that was for a couple of months. But we had one night, because we used to work off of... Um, from our beds to in the water within 90 seconds, which was like 
out your bed, onto the deck, into a rib, lowered into the water, and then trying to help. And it was one night, it was about one o'clock in the morning, the alarm went off, straight in the ribs. In fact, I stayed in the hospital because there was that many casualties, and I'd, I'd done quite a intense medical course when I was in that specialist unit before. So I stayed in the hospital with the paramedics to help them because of the amount of casualties that were coming through. And a lot of people, unfortunately, died. But we had one girl that she was foaming from the mouth. I was like, oh, I reckon there's something in this. Like, can have a go on this. So I worked on her for about 20 minutes. And uh, she was severely hypothermic. And I, I managed to sort of, like, rewarm her through, a, like, a lukewarm shower, mm. like, up in the temperature. Managed to bring her back round. And um, everyone else died. Everyone else that we had on that boat went into the morgue. And where she had so many clothes on, because that's what, what they were doing, is when, when the mothers were fleeing with their kids, they were putting as many items of clothing on as they can. So some kids would have like six, seven layers of clothing on just to try and get away with as many yeah. possessions as they could. Yeah. So I've got some of like the top layers of her clothes off, like without having to cut them off. So I then went and stuck them in our washing machine, tumble dryer, and put her in them because we had them in paper suits, like all the casualties went straight in the paper suits because all their clothes were wet. And I thought, oh, you don't want someone in a, it's like a police forensic suit. Mm. You know what I mean? You don't, that ain't no, that's not comfortable for anyone. So I got her into her own clothes to try and make her feel a little bit more comfortable. And we had her for about nine hours where we was obviously bobbing around, waiting to see if any more boats come across. And I spoke to the captain of the, of the ship because we had a rule that you can't take anyone that's not, like a team member inside our living quarters of the ship. And I just said, look, young girl, eight or nine years old, no dramas whatsoever. Can I make her some food and put like the telly on for her? So he was like, ah, all down to you. So I, I sort of like looked after this little girl, played games with her, give her my phone. She's scrolling on my phone, mm. like messing around on games and that. And it dawned on me, I was like, ah, oh, we've got a lot of dead people upstairs, probably our family. So then I was like overridden with guilt. Yeah. Like, ah, probably should have let her die, really, because now we're going to take her to a Greek island. She's got no one, doesn't speak the language, and just going to go into a horrific system of, well, you don't know what's going to happen to her. Yeah. So the guilt was eating me up bad. And uh, the call was made we was going to sail back to a little Greek island, hand the bodies over to the undertaker hand this one survivor over to the authorities and then we'd refuel restock food go back out and that's what we did we used to just sit around in the hot spots to, to catch these people coming across from turkey and try and save them if they got yeah. in distress and as we started sailing back we got a distress call that um a handful of people had been washed up on an uninhabited island so we were like ah, we go back and then come back from They'll probably be dead by the time we get back because yeah. they've got no food, water, and they're just going to cook like in the sun all day. Yeah. So we're like, oh, right, we'll get them on the way back to dropping the only survivor off this little girl and, and the pair of souls that didn't make it. And as we got them on board, the first three people on was her mum, dad, and brother. No. Yeah. So they thought she had died and she thought oh. they had died. Mate. And it was all caught on a hidden CCTV camera that even I didn't know was there. Oh. So, yeah, I've got that. So that was... Uh, wow. 
oh, without a shadow of a doubt, the best thing I've done. Wow. Yeah, that was that was special. Out of all those people that died, and out they of found all their, of them people, yeah, they found it, their family together. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I can obviously show you that after. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. After this, fair play. Yeah, you. so that was that was good. And then when you left Greece? So we come back, um, and obviously where I said earlier, we kind of become a little bit more involved than we was meant to. Um, Theresa May wrote a letter to our unit saying that the team before ours and our team had done such a good job, like give us a, a big chuck up. So our RSM, he was like, lads, get yourselves home, have six weeks at home, yeah. just chill out because... You've done some outstanding stuff there. And then that was pretty much the end of that, really. Because, uh, unfortunately, a few of the people in the team before us uh, got medically discharged for post-traumatic stress disorder. Because mm. I think the unit thought we was going out there just to like stand on the bridge of the boat and be there in case anything yeah. happened. But any any decent man that sees women and children in yeah. bother, you're going to help. Yeah. And, and that's what we did. We kind of made it our mission. And we'd split the team. We'd have two blokes... Everyone would be tooled up, but we'd have blokes that were actively watching, and then we'd have like three blokes pulling people out the water and just doing what we could to try and save as much life as possible. Mm. Massive respect. Yeah, so that that that's uh, one of the highlights of my career. So obviously, people join the military and they want to do all the, the scrapping yeah. and the running off of helicopters and doing it, which I got to do anyway. Yeah. I've done quite a lot of that. But then that just hit a different league of. Yeah, yeah I'm happy with that. Yeah. What was your movements after? What have your movements been like, like over the last sort of seven, eight years? So funnily enough, that that Greece thing, that that tour kind of fits into that time period. Yeah. Um, I come back from there. I then rejoined Four Two Commando, and I went out to Sierra Leone on a short-term training team, and taught their force reconnaissance unit like uh, medical life-saving medical techniques and basic field craft and break contact and other sort of um, skills and drills f for a soldier out in the jungle. So that, that was a good six weeks. And then from there, I went back to the special specialist military unit that I'd previously done mm -hmm. an Afghan with. And because I knew everyone there anyway, the day I joined, they were like, oh, just to let you know, you're deploying in two months. So I went straight on individual pre-deployment training, requalified in like my uh, remote medic course, got all my ticks in the boxes again, and then I deployed out to the Middle East um, and did some covert stuff against ISIS. What sort of stuff were you doing against ISIS? What country were you in? I was in the Middle East. Whereabouts? I'm not going to go into the country, but... In the Middle East, ISIS, it was their last stronghold in uh, in a certain country. And we went in and supported the push through ISIS to sweep them out of that country. Um, yeah. Yeah, we, we smashed a granny out of them. <laughs> Quality. That's, there's no point in beating around a yeah. bush. Yeah, 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 they, they, listen, they caused a lot of dramas. I yeah. don't feel nothing for them. Yeah. So uh, I was actually only out there a, a couple of months because we got hit with a Thermobaric anti-tank missile. So as much as it pains me, I got sent home because of that. But 
Yeah, I only did half the tour. I didn't finish the old tour, mm. but I was in hospital, so I couldn't really help oh, that. So you got hit with it? Our team did. Yeah. And what happened to you? So we, it was a Saturday morning. Our forces that we were embedded with supporting were sweeping through the city. ISIS were calling indirect fire, like mortars and artillery onto them. So about 10 of us went forward, established an observation point on a, a high-rise building. Our sniper, he got eyes on another high-rise building um, two kilometres away that had ISIS fighters in there with binoculars, which we deemed they were the ones that were calling in the indirect fire onto our advancement. So I neutralised their observation post with the Javelin anti-tank missile mm. and sent it direct attack through the window which freed up the advance because it rendered their eyes useless, not being able to call in the IDF indirect fire. Mm. And then 15, 20 minutes later, as we were collapsing, we got hit with an American Thermobaric anti-tank missile. An American not, one? Yeah, not by the Americans. Okay. ISIS had obviously taken them off of the Iraqi military yeah. or got them somewhere. So we ended up getting hit with... Um, Yes, a, a tow, a tube optical wire guided anti tank missile. So that that stung a little bit. And uh, yeah, we had um, our sniper and our special forces communicator were, were bad casualties. So we um, obviously treated them, supported the extraction of them. Unfortunately, we lost three of our indigenous forces that we were working with. And then uh, there was four of us that sort of like a bit wobbly on our feet, probably concussion, like a mild traumatic yeah. brain injury. Yeah. Obviously, we cracked on because we had to fight our way out of where we was. Um, and then because we had to get an American Black Hawk emergency helicopter in to get our two casualties out, we were then pulled off the ground to reset back in our patrol base and uh, an American Special Forces team come and ripped us out we got back and um, we was getting ready to go back out again. And uh, the team leader come over and was like, right, you boys have got a helicopter coming, use for going back to another base in another country. We got there. We then flew back to Birmingham, went into hospital, and we was checked out for like mild traumatic brain injuries because we'd been hit with such big ordnance. Mm. They didn't know what it had done to our mm. insides. And obviously where we was a bit wobbly and couldn't walk properly. So we come back, had a load of hearing tests, MRI scans and things like that. I actually went back into theatre three days later. I played my unit and another unit off against each other, told them I was good. Then phoned the other unit that I was working with at the time and said, yeah, can you get me a hire car and a flight, please, for Monday? Obviously they... I don't know. I've just waffled a load of jargon. Yeah. They booked me an car and a flight and I flew back into northern Iraq and had my friend come and pick me up from the airport, went back to the base and then I managed to get on a helicopter and get back to my patrol base with the lads. I did about another six weeks on the ground and then the colonel of the medical corps, who was like one of um, the medical team looking after us, 
obviously went absolutely loopy that I'd just decided to crack my own and get back into theatre. And she managed to get through on the phone to northern Iraq. And they were like, where is he? She, well, she said, where is he? Can't tell you. But they put her through to the phone where my base was. And she phoned through. And one of the lads who answered who doesn't really care. Mm. She was like, where is Twiggy? He's like, oh, he's on the ground winging mortars at Daesh. <laughs> And I think the words went along the lines of, you tell that yeah, to yeah. phone me. Yeah. So I got back in, phoned her. I'm like, Mom, how are you? Not happy with you. Like, your R&R's been cancelled. You're flying straight to Birmingham. Because I was meant to fly back in the Heathrow to have two weeks off yeah. and then second yeah. part of the tour. So I landed in Birmingham, straight in for another MRI, went home. I had a week and a half off. And then it was the day before I was due to fly back in the theatre. And she phoned me and went, you need to be at the hospital at half eight in the morning. I went, no, I'm flying at four o'clock tomorrow afternoon. Like, I'm redeploying. She went, you're not anymore. You'll be here at half eight in the morning. I thought, okay. She went, and don't drive. And that's when the penny dropped that something might be wrong. So my mum drove me up to Birmingham Hospital. And it was weird. It was almost like I was a celebrity. Like, people waiting to rush Mm. me through. And people in them white coats with clipboards. Mm straight into the MRI scanner again. Come out the MRI scanner, yeah, come with me, please. And then I I got taken into a room with like a hollow square of doctors in suits and and white gowns and things like that. And I remember walking in and saying, I I couldn't help but say it, it just come out of my mouth. I went, oh, well, this don't look fucking good, Mm -hmm. does it? And they sat me down, tried giving it the old wrap you in cotton Mm -hmm. water. I said, look, get it over and done with. I'm a big boy, just tell Mm -hmm. me what you've got to tell me. They were like, "Ah, you've got a brain tumour. I was like, all right, I, I don't really get a lot about it. I didn't really know what a brain tumour was. So they explained the severity of it to me and said that I needed to have a craniotomy and have it cut out my head. So I said, well, I've got three months of this tour left. Then I've got a month off. Can we do it in that month? And they were like, ah, no, no you've got a brain tumour. You are yeah. not going back on the ground. That's yeah. your career over, yeah. which uh, a lot more than the brain tumour. Mm. So... I I think I had about two weeks, maybe two and a half, and then I, I went in for this craniotomy. So they cut my head open, removed the front right part of my brain, and then I come round. I was in, in a ward for a couple of days for them to watch to see if anything went wrong, because obviously it's quite an intrusive procedure. A lot can go wrong with, with having brain surgery. But there's a welfare house up in Birmingham called Fisher House, amazing facility with an amazing team that run it up there. And what they did is they had me in there in comfort instead of just being on, on the ward, which was a massive help to have like your own telly in a yeah. bedroom and things like that, an ensuite bathroom. And then, yeah, 10 days later, I had to go in for a consultation. And uh, my friend come with me and we walked in. Well, as we was walking over to the, the main hospital building, he was like, are you all right? I said, 50-50, isn't it? I'm either good or I'm fucked. Like, there's no in-between here. <laughs> And he was like, all right. And we went in and same again, little wallow square of really important mm. looking people. And the old candy floss, mm. you know what I mean? Let's wrap him up in mm. something soft. And I was like, right, just do what you got to do. Like, clearly this isn't good for the mm. way you're all looking at mm. me. And they were like, right, oh, you've got 12 to 15 months to live. You've got the most aggressive form of cancer. I was like, ah, right, oh, 
all right, that's maybe a little bit worse than I thought I was coming in yeah. here for, but thanks. And that was that. I, the following Monday, I went straight into a prolonging life phase of double chemotherapy and maximum radiotherapy. So I'd literally gone from the pinnacle of my career, yeah. operating on the ground in a special forces combat liaison team as part of a multi-organizational mm. special forces team, loving life to you're going to die next year, mate. And I was like, ah, nah, not happening. Not happening. So just rode that wave for nine months of that prolonging life phase. What year was this? 2019. Bloody hell. Like you've gone through a lot of stuff. And when someone comes and tells you that, that you've got 12, 15 months to live, for you personally and the character you are, what went through your head? Fuck you. Yeah. I'll decide. Yeah. Simple as that. What can you do about it? You sit there crying. That ain't going to make a difference. Mm. You know what I mean? Just get aggressive with it and fight it. At the end of the day, until you're in a box, anything's achievable. Yeah. Just because someone's told me I'm going to die next year, don't mean I'm going to roll over and listen to them. Yeah. But I've got a very strong rapport with that whole medical team now because obviously they've looked after me for a while. And at, at the beginning, there was obviously questions about my mental health because they thought I was in denial. And they actually got some character references of people that work very close to me, and they were like, ah, "No, it's just you literally don't give a fuck." Yeah. Um, Is that how you feel today? Oh, mate, I don't even think about it. Yeah. You Have you got mean? kids? Yeah. Yeah, I've got twins at fifteen. But I tried hiding it from them, if you know what I mean. I, I sort of like, I'd rather take the brunt of, of the ag than put it on other people. Do they know? They do now, yeah. But to start with, when I started losing my hair, I started going blind. It was becoming a bit of a chore to hide it from people. But I just did my thing and got on with it. and was like, ah, pff, I've never given up before, so I ain't going to now. And that's what I meant when I, I said, like, the climbing of the rope. Yeah. End of the world back then. Yeah. No, that ain't the end of the world. Mm. Getting told you've got 12 to 15 months, that is the end of the world. So you got told in 2019. We're now in 2023. Oh, yeah, I'm 40 months past my sell-by date. Yeah, that's it. We're cracking on. Quality, man. Yeah, we're cracking on. Quality. Yeah. Good for you, man. And then are you going back, getting tests done again? Are they saying, like, the tumour's gone? What? How does it work? So the thing is, is how I've been explained it, if if a cancer cell is a football, yep. mines are octopuses. So okay. they've got tentacles. Yep. So you can see the main body, but you can't see the tentacles. Yep. So they can cut the main body out of the tumour, but they guarantee there's tentacles lurking within my brain that will turn into tumours again. So they kind of guarantee that, well, it's incurable. Like there's there's no way out of it. There's no cure f- mm. for what I have, but I've just tried attacking it with a positive attitude and a bit of positive aggression. And mm. I'm still here talking to you. Yeah, mate. Four and a half years on. I've got goosebumps. This well, is powerful, Rian. March the 20th, I'll yeah. make it into the top 3% of survivors in the world if I don't die before now on March the 20th. March the 20th, 2024. That's it. Five-year point. And then I'll go for the 10-year point, which will put me in the top 1%. And then no one who's got what I've got have made it past 20 years. So I'll be seeing you in 25. Yeah, mate. Part two. Mate, that's how it goes. Yeah. How old are you? 35. 35. But in that period... There's been lots of positives, right? Oh, I just went back to work and cracked on. You got cracking on. Yeah. And yeah. also, gotta give this a shout, written your own book. Yeah, so COVID it. Obviously I was deemed as vulnerable. This is book anyone out Yeah, there, there it is. Check it out. So yeah. Every day's a battle. That's it. Every day is a battle, fighting demons, jihadis, and terminal cancer. Yeah, COVID it, and because I was deemed as vulnerable, because I was on chemo, I had a, a bit of six I was offered two years sick leave. I was basically told, look, just go home and die peacefully yeah. at home. You've done your bit. 
I'm like, nah, not interested. The sofa don't appeal to me. So the unit I was in was quite a grown-up, mature unit. And uh, we still had um, constant cycles of lads doing good bits on operations all over the world. So I just went back to work and started running the heavy weapons uh, pre-deployment courses, getting people ready ready to go away. And then I did um, like some... Uh, I was like the counter-terrorism liaison officer. I went on a couple of strategic planning courses and that, and then was working between my unit and the CTSFOs of South Wales and the Southwest. So that was also good because yeah. it was something different. Keep your mind active as well, didn't it? Yeah, Sitting and I around. just didn't want to sit there what's, about what's that. Been, what's been, what are you doing this last 12 months? So I'm now a military advisor in Africa. In Africa? Yeah. So I've worked in East Africa, Ukraine, and now West Africa. Have gun will travel. Yeah, mate. What are you doing in Africa? So, certain countries that have problems with terrorism, mm. but they don't have the input of the Western world. Um, there's a small team of us advisors that go in and try and help them plan their operations to defeat the terrorism on their borders. What sort of countries are you talking here? Places you don't want to go. Mm. Like... Oh, I'm not going into it because Somalia it's still ongoing. Kenya, no. Nah. East coast, west coast, more west, but that's as far as I'm saying. Mm. <laughs> Ask me when I don't do it. <laughs> Tell me your day a day right now. You've obviously got one mind on that, or you just like, forget that. You can do one. I'm conscious. I'm going forward, forward, forward. I'm not even thinking about that. I only go forward. There's yeah. no, yeah, there's not a backward step. Yeah. No, not interested. Mm. Forward only. Mm. Yeah, to, to be fair, the whole cancer thing. Yeah, I don't even really, I don't think even really think it. about it, mate, to yeah. be honest. Yeah, good for you. We're just that That's far why. down the line. It's like, yeah, all right, I'm terminally all with cancer. I'm still here. Yeah. Still active, still doing bits and pieces. Yeah. You know what I mean? I'll decide when it's time to go. Yeah. Rian, you've lived some eventful life. And we'll crack on. Yeah, mate. I've really, really enjoyed this episode. I've Twiggy. enjoyed it. I appreciate it. Yeah, mate. I appreciate you coming on. When we when we spoke, we hit it off straight away. We yeah. just knew. Hopefully good times ahead. Yeah, mate. Big time ahead for you. And we'll definitely do a part two. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. And I wish you all the best in everything you've done because you've done unbelievable for our country. Thank you very much. And Likewise. that story in Greece... I know all the fighting on the fields and the, the battles and what have you is madness and I get that. And, but that Greece story, I could tell that hit the uh, heartstrings of you. Thing is, I've got a daughter and I. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, war, war happens. Yeah. You can see it all over the news. Israel, mm. Palestine, mm. Russia, Ukraine. War's inevitable. It's mm. going to happen forever. Mm. And there's wars and conflicts going on in countries people don't even know about. Yeah. But innocent women and children and just yeah. normal straight goers shouldn't be involved in that. Yeah. yeah. And it's it's a shame that it comes to that. Twiggy, where can people find you? So my book is on Amazon, Every Day is a Battle. And yeah, I've got an Instagram, Twiggy1664. Yeah. Love it, mate. Really enjoyed this. You're a proper gentleman. Thank you very much. I appreciate you're it. You're a good man, Twiggy. Thank you, mate. Good man. Cheers, fella. Cheers, mate. <laughs>